How many of you remember that? It's normally followed by a message like this. This is a test of the emergency broadcast system. This is only a test. In the event of an emergency, you would have been directed to turn to a channel nearest you for information. Now, most of us for many years remember today this EBS is, has turned to a EAS. Brandon got just a little ahead of me up here, but I asked the question this morning. What happens if you walk in one day and this image is on the screen and you get this message? This is not a test. I believe that most of us in here would sit up and we would pay attention. And I believe that we would take some actions. You say, Brother Jerry, you've already kind of let the cat out of the bag today. Well, folks, I don't believe it's a test. I believe that today we are in a national emergency. I want to build the case. Now, I'm going to take about 10, 12, 15 minutes to build the case. So you just hang on for a second. Because today, go ahead, Brandon. Today, I believe that we are in a national emergency. If you want to turn in your Bibles, you can turn to Colossians 4. We will get there eventually. But before I believe that we're really going to look at us being in a national state of emergency, I believe we're going to have to be convinced that we have an emergency. If you will, I want to show you something that if it doesn't disturb you, it should. Go ahead. I want you to look at the nation's decline right here. Generation. We're going to talk about the generations that are living in America right now. Four generations. And about the relationship to the gospel. The first generation is the generation that was born between like 24 and 45. We call them the builders. You're the guys. These guys are passing off the scenes now. But these are the guys that built the infrastructure. They built this nation. They fought the wars. 65% of them, I don't know that you can read. Boy, is that moving that quick, Brandon? 65% of them are people who followed Christ, who professed Christ as their Savior. 65%. The next generation is my generation. We call it the, the boomers, 46 to 64. For a long time, this was the largest generation. If you notice on the far right-hand side, the percentage of Christ followers fell from 65 to 35 percent. I don't know if you think that's a significant erosion, but it is. Then you have those that we call the busters. Now, they go by a lot of names. Some people call them Gen X. They were born in 65 to basically 79, depending on who you read. Now, the percentage of the people who follow Christ, look at that, it's 16 percent. And then the group that came along after them goes, goes by a lot of names just for the sake of uh, staying consistent. I'm going to call them bridgers, but they go by millennials. They go by Gen Y. They're the largest generation in America. When you adjust for um, immigration, there's some 90 million of these. Look at that, how many follow Christ. We're going to hold right there just for a second while I just make just a couple of statements about this generation. This generation has really lacked some really foundational teaching. It's not their fault. 
But let me startle you about even those of that four of that four percent that are raised Christian. Watch this. Go ahead, Brandon. Eighty-eight percent of those children who are raised in Christian families is estimated will leave church at age eighteen and never return again. The results of this are devastating. Let me just give you six or eight, nine bullet points that I think that I think will will capture what I'm saying. Watch this. This 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 generational issue has led to a majority of adults who no longer believe America to be a Christian nation. And by the way, your pastor is one of those. We have allowed our nation that was founded on the principles of God's word to now become basically a pagan nation. I just said, number two, the millennials are the largest, some 90 million of them. Number three, in 2008, you want something to frighten you? In 2008, it was the millennials who elected Barack Obama as president. They voted 65 to 30, 66 to 32 percent. They greatly impacted the election, and that's not the end. It's going to get worse. They're marrying later. Excuse me. Because this is 65% will cohabitate before marriage. Have you thought about that? It used to be that you got married and then you got the benefits of marriage. Today, you're supposed to get the benefits of marriage and then you get married. You know what you're discovering? That for those who cohabitate, those who move in with each other, those who we used to call shack up, those who engage in uh, immoral uh, sexual activity, please listen, teenagers, those who do that are about 75% greater Opportunity for divorce. Let's move on, Brandon. They will become the most educated generation in history. You know, when I went to college, in my family, in my family, I was one of the first. Mom took a vocational college. Dad had two weeks in the 10th grade. That was not the exception. That was the rule for dirt farmers. Today, they have more opportunity than ever before. Brandon, they're marrying later, if at all. Women have moved, the average age of being married is from 20 to 25, men from 23 to 27, and that's just a change since the 70s. This last one is the one that's telltale to me, and please pay attention, teenagers, if you hadn't yet. They are not religious. They say they're spiritual, but not religious. But here's the deal. What does spiritual mean? And they really can't put a handle on it because they've never been taught. They just know there's something out there, and they've never been taught with any first-person connection to God. And so they're wondering, and they know that they're spiritual. People will talk to you today about the spiritual life. They'll even talk to you about Jesus. In fact, I'm reading a book right now. They like Jesus, but they hate the church. All the time this is going on, here's what's happening in our culture. It's disintegrating. Truth is evaporating. Uh, evil is taking its place. Trust is eroding. Ethics are, have become a thing of the past. And quite honestly, no offense, students, you know how much I love you. But our young people do not have a clue about how to have a household that's happy, how to build a family that's based on God's Word, how to build a country and protect it and secure it. And those are the wide-ranging issues. When you get to the personal issues, those in-your-face issues today, the emergency escalates. 
Because I don't believe we can say any longer that the home is disintegrating. When you look at what the Supreme Court did just a week ago, when you look at the number of marriages and divorce, when you look at the common view of a marriage, the truth is, in this country, the home is all but disintegrated. And as the home disintegrates, the government tries to step up and step in and be the substitute. And here's what I want to tell you. Government is a pitiful substitute for a home. And what's caused this? falls on our backs. The home is failing. Please listen. The home is failing to teach their children about the most important things of life. We're teaching them about sports. We're teaching them about fun. We're teaching them how to vacation. But we're not teaching them about that anchor we used to sing about, that solid rock. And by and large, Christian families, please listen. This is a hook for us. By and large, believing mom and dads, church-going mom and dads have taught their kids to go to church. They have taken their kids to church. They didn't send them. They took them to, to church. But that was where it began and ended. It was not about walking with Christ. And they take them and they give them to Brother David and our other youth leaders and, and Lee and, and Kathy and our other children and youth leaders. And they want us to teach and fill in the gap there. But listen, I heard it said this past week, the church cannot resurrect what the home puts to death. And I'm afraid that our young people, not just teenagers, I'm talking about our young adults, have not understood because they've not seen it demonstrated the connection that comes to Christ. It's not their fault. It falls on my generation. It falls on the people my age. But you know what the results are? We have a generation of selfies. We have a generation of selfies. It's all about me. Look at me. Me. And you know, they didn't learn that on their own. They didn't just pick that up. They caught it because it's all been about us. They don't know what it is to build a country and build a life that's selfless. They don't know what it is to, to think about other people before us. And I just want to tell you, this selfie, this selfie mentality has destroyed many nations, has destroyed many churches, has destroyed many homes has destroyed many lives because you can't build your life on me. And here we are as Christ followers. Christ followers and biblical believing people are out of step with this culture. There's your national emergency. Started out on Facebook for me, and I understand it made it on Fox News. I never saw it, but this week, as the homosexual mayor of Houston, Texas, got her city council to subpoena the manuscripts of preachers before they preached. In a meeting of preachers that I was with on Friday, one of them turned to me and said, what are you going to do? I said, well, I'm not going to be ugly or mean-spirited. I am just going to say, no, thank you. If you want to handcuff me, handcuff me. 
But when you look at that, when you look again our Supreme Court, you see, folks, when we preach, hear me out before you tune me out. When we preach that homosexuality is a sin, just like fornication, just like adultery, just like gossip, just like hate, just like stealing, just like murder, we're considered to be intolerant. But I want to just say this. I think we are out of step with the world, but I think we've always been out of step with the world. But if you look at our world, what's going on right now is our world is not creating a better people. We're not creating a better culture. We're not creating a culture where people are looking beyond this life. We're looking at our next best experience. In fact, for many people, that's what we think we need. We think we need a better program. We need a better social event, a social program, a creative marketing strategy. But folks, listen, the government does not possess the answer for what's going on in America right now. We are in an emergency because God designed us to be like Him And we're trying to become like us. So how do we address this situation? Well, if you get in a national emergency, if you get in a national emergency, how do you respond? Basically, three things happen. Number one, you have the normal operations, your normal life suspended. Now, particularly you're talking about government, judicial, legislative, um, and executive branches. Normal operations are suspended. Number two, there's a change of behavior. And number three, you have to lay out an emergency plan. If you're really in an emergency, are you getting this? Are you hanging on or have you already gone to sleep? I want to appeal to you who have walked in today unconcerned. I want to appeal to you at a place that I think we are soft enough and pliable enough to listen, hear, and heed. By the way, Michael Kath this week said, listen, heed, hear, heed, and hurry. If we are really concerned... I said, I want to talk to you in your soft place. If we're concerned about our children, if we're concerned about our grandchildren, if we're concerned about those who come after with our great-grandchildren at the times now, and I'm just telling you, the answer is not only found in church attendance. I think that'll be a part of the solution, but that's not particularly the answer. The only church which can really offer an answer is a church that has focused to make Jesus center stage, first and foremost, in everything we do. Presenting Jesus. Well, that's kind of steps on us. You know, we got tickled. Daniel Simmons, as he spoke at Refresh, he was talking about how there was a blow-up in a ministry I don't remember which ministry it was, Troy, Wayne. Had a blow-up in a ministry. And they came to him and said, Oh, preacher, we had a blow-up in a ministry. I think it may have been the uh, um, First Impressions ministry. They had agreed that they would all wear white. And somebody came wearing off-white. And Daniel goes, Are you kidding me? 
People are going to hell and you're, and you're fighting over where you wear white or off-white. Now, before we get on them too much, we might need to look in a mirror personally. Now, I don't know what the Lord is telling you about our state of affairs in this country, in our culture. I don't even know if you made the danger, but back to Michael, he made a, a poignant point this week when he said, would your attitude be any different if that individual had been beheaded in Hueytown? Would your attitude be any different about an emergency if those three killings in Birmingham had been at our post office here in Hueytown? I guess the question for me is what's it going to take? What's it going to take for us to, to wake up? What if the next Ebola case was diagnosed at West? Or worse than that, in the house next door to you? I think God is trying to send us some things to get our attention. Brother Jerry, you saying God's doing all this bad stuff? Listen, I'm not telling you God's doing it, but I'm telling you that every bit of it passes through his filter before it gets to us. Well, what is it going to take for us to turn loose of pride? You know what? I'm convinced that every time we come to the end of the service, the only reason we're not before the Lord on this altar is P-R-I-D-E. I've tried to take this time to alarm us and to sound the alarm and to awaken us to the truth that arounds us to the truth that we're no longer in Kansas, to the th- truth that we can't click our heels three times and say there's no place like the past. Just take us back to the 50s or 60s and then get a whisk away to some place that we thought was better. I will tell you this, we keep looking to the past for the answer. This country is going to disintegrate right before us. We'll sacrifice all we know and all we love on the altar of spiritual apathy. The answer will only come when we turn to the Lord. You keep that Colossians 4 open, but it's written in the Old Testament. It's a national emergency. If my people, that's us, who are called by my name because you claim to be his, will humble themselves. And if they'll pray, And if they'll seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Now, there's a whole message right there because if we seek God's face, we have to turn from our wicked ways. A lot of us would really like to seek God's face, but we want to hang on to our sin. We want to hang on to our selfishness. We want to hang on to our selfie way of life. National emergency. Normal operations suspended. Change in the way of life. An emergency plan. I'm going to give you step one today from Colossians 4. If you will, turn to Colossians 4 and let's stand to read. Verses 2 through 6. Here's Paul's word to the Colossians and to us. Continue steadfastly in prayer. 
being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray for uh, also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am now in prison. For those that may not know, Paul was writing this from a jail cell in Rome. That I might that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward the outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Father, in the time that remains, open your word to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Be seated. I will submit to you that Paul gives us the first step that parallels the Chronicles. If there's going to be an answer to this emergency, and it is prayer. I just ask you right now, how's your prayer life? I was amazed the first time I wrote devotions for our church, the number of people that came back and it was reported to me that, you know, I've never really done this before. That's kind of like saying I've lived 60 years and never gone to the table to eat. After you don't go to the table for a while, you starve and you die. From our text, let me just suggest this to you. As we, as we think of this emergency plan that we have requires action, let's think about the action of our prayers. First of all, I see in this text the operation of our prayers. The operation of our prayers. How does your prayer operate? How often does it operate? How consistent does it operate? What does your prayer convey? Who do you pray about? What do you pray for? Most people only go to the Lord in prayer when they perceive they got a problem, and it's like God's their little servant boy. They pray that He would come and take it over and, and fix it. But prayer is much more than that. It's communication. Look at the three thoughts that I find here as you think about your operation of prayer. First of all, look at your approach. Look at those first two words in verse 2. Continue steadfastly. Can I ask you, is that your prayer life? Do you continue? It's like Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. He said, pray without ceasing. How do you approach him in prayer? Is your prayer life kind of like your church attendance hit and miss? If I got nothing else to do on the weekend, yeah, I'll go be a part of the family of God who are worshiping the the God of creation. Or is your prayer life a constant part of who you are and what you do? The truth is, most revivals, historical revivals, have begun on our knees in prayer. And not with the clergy, although I hate that term. Just with people wanting God to make a change. Because you see, when God gets in our hearts, when we pray and we approach Him consistently, our hearts are changed. So our lives are changed. So our homes are changed. So our culture is changed. So our country is changed. Pentecost was ushered in with prayer. 
How about your approach? Well, the Bible didn't. Paul didn't just leave it there. He says, your approach is to continue steadfastly. And then he talks about your attentiveness. What are you paying attention to? He says, being watchful with it. Being watchful literally means to pay attention to what you're praying for. Not just praying for Aunt Sue's big toe that's got a bad hangnail. You know, God can take care of our, our health issues before we pray for it. If we don't pray amiss, but listen, God can handle the bigger problems that we're facing. And He wants to handle the problems of your life, but He doesn't force His way in. And Graham Lott said many years ago, God is a perfect gentleman. He will not elbow His way into your life. He will come in only when you invite Him. You see, folks, we face real difficult problems in this culture which is a result of real difficult problems in the church, which is a result of God's people not walking with God. And most of the time, having said that with God's people not walking with God, most of the time, it's not a cognizant decision. Most of the time, it's not God's people waking up and, Saying, you know, I just don't think I'm going to follow him anymore. That's not really what happens. It's simply a matter that we're not attentive. We're not paying attention. And we just slip away a little here. We slip away a little there. All of a sudden, that daily prayer that we had now becomes every other day, and then it's every third day, and then it's every fourth day, and that church attendance, which was so uh, a, a vital part of our growing in Christ, now becomes every other week because, hey, we got a cabin in, in the mountains, and we got a uh, condo on the beach, and so we've got to go do this. We've got this boat. we got these season tickets. we just got other things to do, so God, we'll just work you in wherever, wherever we feel like it's okay. And we lose our attentiveness. When you approach God, your attentiveness, can I just ask you this question? Do you talk to God? Do you talk at God? Or do you talk with God? You know, when you talk with somebody, you listen to them. I know it irritates you because... I'm kingpin about doing this, and I've been over the last six or eight months trying to watch myself because I know I'm kingpin about doing it. Somebody's talking to you, and you cut them off. Could I get a witness? Yeah, everybody knows about that. Can you imagine how much it irritates God when you come to him and you present a problem to him, and he begins talking to you and go, okay, amen. You see, talking with God is listening to him. We don't just need to take before Him our band-aids. We don't just need to take before Him our need for blessing. We need to take before Him those deep problems in our lives. How to raise our children. How to let our children see Jesus in us. How to let our neighbors see Jesus in us. Is Jesus in us? God, I pray you prayer, your approach, how you come to Him continuously, steadfastly. Your attentiveness, are you being attentive to it? And then it's your attitude, number three, your attitude, your prayers, how your prayer operates. What attitude do you go? Do you go mully grubbing? Do you get in the bottom? Do you get in a pit of trial and trouble? And you call it perseverance. By the way, 
Mark Bearden, who preaches almost every year down in um, in Albany, he is the master of the one-liners. He's got a one-liner for everything, and he taught us this week what persever what we think perseverance is. He thinks he said most people think perseverance is whining until God quits. You know the tr- the truth is we're supposed to. Approach God with thanksgiving. End of verse 2. With thanksgiving. Well, Brother Jerry, if you had the life I had, you'd feel like I do. Well, really, tell me about it. Well, you know, my husband left me, my kids hate me, and I'm sick. Well, a question for you. Do you know Jesus? What does that got to do with anything? There we go. Here's what it has to do with. When you know Jesus, your sights are set beyond this life. Does it still hurt when those troubles of life come? Yeah. But you now have an anchor. You have a companion. You have a friend that you can build your life on. And it's Jesus. But you meet him in prayer. That prayer draws you closer to him. You know, more often than not, we're not thankful when we come to God, James. Because we live with such an attitude of American entitlement. You deserve a break today. You deserve it? I want to get the computer my family deserves. You deserve it? I want to get the money this government owes me that I deserve. Oh, you deserve it? Let me just clue everybody in here. Do you know what we deserve? We deserve hell. We deserve punishment because the Bible says the payment, the compensation schedule for sin is death. Anybody here not sinned? That's not my hand up. I was just trying to show you. <laughs> you see, folks, the truth is the Bible tells us what we deserve and the Bible tells us the way to get things done correctly and that is through prayer. If there's going to be an answer to this emergency, the change in behavior, the emergency plan begins on our needs, the operation of our plan. Well, if we've got an operation, that's, that's the start. What is the, what is the objective, number two, of our prayer? What is the objective of my prayer? You know, the reason, the reason of why we pray is crucial because of what we want to be the outcome. Hmm. You know, your, out, your desired outcome will control your behavior. Did you know that? I'm going to confess my sins that I don't have to confess. You know, my wife been having some medical issues about a couple of months ago. I won't tell you how fresh it is, but I remember it clearly. I needed to get her into the doctor. And I didn't need to get her into the doctor on Friday. You understand? Y'all got what I'm telling you? I was concerned. Called the doctor's office when they told me it was supposed to be a time that I could call. And it goes to the night service. I called for 15 minutes. I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to confess my sins because you won't. So I'm going to tell you about it. I was steamed. I had a, had a situation that I needed to take care of. So I drove to the doctor's office. Can you all get the level of frustration going up here? And I called all the way there six times 
between that time I left home and the time I got there. I walked into the doctor's office. And there were people all behind the counter, but nobody had any concern with me. I stood there and I kept calling. I would hear that phone ring and it would go right on the night. And I stood there and I want to just tell you, I am so hot. I'm thinking, God, I am going to lose my testimony and I'm going to get fired from that church if I go up there and say what I really is on my heart right now. <laughs> and I said, Lord, this is what I need. I don't need a fight. I need help. And in that moment, honestly, not because I'm perfect. I already told you my sin. I was hot. God put the right words in my mouth. And I walked up and I got help. Do you all hear what I'm telling you? The outcome I needed was help, not a fight. The outcome we need in this country is we need help. We need supernatural help. We need help that can only come from from God. We need, first of all, and it's all right here, he's telling them to pray. And, and, and here's, what he, here's the truth. We need what he was telling us to pray for. We need a supernatural work. We need a supernatural work. We are educated, enlightened people, and we don't particularly believe in supernatural, but I'm going to tell you what I do. We're so enlightened, we don't think God does anything supernatural. I had some, a preacher tell me a lot, long ago that he was a cessationalist, that God really didn't give gifts and things like that anymore. You know what I think it is? We might believe it, but we're embarrassed. We're afraid that we'll embarrass God or ourselves or something. But Paul said, pray that God will open a door. Folks, I am praying in this country daily. I am praying in this church daily that God will open a supernatural door, that He will do whatever it takes. Now, I'm a little bit getting a little bit frightened because every time I pray, God, do whatever it takes to open our eyes. Do something supernatural. Some other catastrophe happens in this country. I believe that the door of opportunity for this church, for the church in America, and for the country of America itself is closing. And I believe the reason God is letting it begin to close is because it's been so wide open for so long, and we have sent other things through the door. We have taken it for granted. And today, we've not taken advantage of our open door for His kingdom. Now we need to pray for God to grant a supernatural work to open that door again, and that we will have the courage to walk through. You know what? We need a supernatural work to open the door again. But you know what that work is? To open the door for a supernatural word. He says, he says that God may open a door for the word to declare the mysteries of Christ. You know what the supernatural word is? You've got, you got it on your device or you got it in your hands. It's God's Word. It doesn't matter whether it's on an iPad, a Samsung Note 3, an iPhone. It doesn't matter if it's a book, hardback, softback, leather, cowhide. It doesn't matter. 
What's in it is God's Word. It has the ability to change life. It is life-giving. It is life-affirming. It is life-changing. It's life. And that's what this country needs. We need a word from Jesus. We have to pray for, for God's Word through us to reach to a lost, dying, depraved, disintegrating world. You know what the answer is? Do you know what the answer for abuse, drug abuse, sexual abuse, verbal abuse, homosexuality, selfishness, gossip, hate, racism, divorce, immorality? You know what the answer is? It's Jesus. We've got the answer and nobody's heard it. You know why God hates all those things? Because he's righteous and he just got this list of things that he hates. No, listen. Here's why he hates all those things, teenagers. He hates all those things because he knows how much it hurts his crown creation. Let's take divorce. Violent word. Not many people in this room have not been impacted at some level by divorce. And if it's you, you'll know what I'm telling you is the truth. And if it's your sister or your brother, your aunt and uncle, mother and daddy, they'll tell you it's the truth. There is nothing that is more painfully violent than what God has joined together as one flesh to be ripped apart. It leaves scars that will never go away. reason God doesn't want us to cohabitate, to have sex outside of marriage. It's because when you join together in that one flesh, you are joined. And you leave a part of yourself with that person. And it's there and it's, it rips us up. And so we become messed up people. Folks, we need this supernatural work of the door open. We need the supernatural word of God's Gospel of truth, of life, help, hope, and salvation. And how does that happen? The objective of your prayer is not just a supernatural work and supernatural word, but it will lead to a supernatural witness. Whew. A supernatural witness. Paul prayed, Paul said that the door, that God may open a door for the word, here it is, to declare the mystery. Paul knew the only way for people to have hope. Paul knew that the only way for people to be saved was by hearing a clear word of gospel about Jesus Christ from someone who has experienced. Hello? You okay? That puts the monkey right on our back. The only way for this country and culture to be salvaged is by hearing God's Word and hearing it from someone who spends time with the one who saved them. Hello? It's a sad commentary. How many who claim to know Christ have never shared that miraculous event, that miraculous change with anybody.
The way we get the courage is we spend our time in prayer. And watch this. We don't like it. Hang on, Baptists. Don't run out. And when we pray, the Holy Spirit comes and empowers us. The Holy Spirit. Not to fear the Holy Spirit. I don't care whether you call him the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit. Here's what he'll do. He'll come into a life and he'll give you power like you've never known. He'll give you direction like you've never known. He'll give you confidence like you've never known. He'll give you leadership like you've never known. By the way, he will be your conscience like you've never known. You start, Satan starts trying to tempt you if you, are, if you have the Spirit of God in your life. You know what he's going to say? Don, you don't really want to do that. Yeah, I do. No, Don, you really don't want to do that. Yeah, I do. I did it last time. Nobody was hurt. It was a lot of fun. Don, you were hurt. And I was hurt. You really don't want to do that. And you know what? Then the Holy Spirit will give you the power to turn your back on that sin. You know, being walking in the Spirit of God does not make you a weirdo because the Spirit of God is not a weirdo. You see, the truth is, when we connect with God in prayer, when we listen to His voice, when we become sensitive to what He's leading us to do, you know what will happen? All of a sudden, you'll be talking about it without even realizing it. When you meet God in prayer, when the operation of your prayer is every day and you spend time with God every day and your objective is to get this power, to get this work and word from Him, you know what will happen? Next thing you know, you'll be talking to somebody. You go, well, you know, I was just thinking this morning when I was praying and God said, and you know, this occurred to me and this happened and God said to me, and I understand this. And all of a sudden your Christian witness starts. Because you're feeding your spiritual life. Too many of us are not, are not sharing our faith because we're not feeding our spiritual lives. And the result is a cold heart, a cold family, a cold church. Somebody walked up to me not long ago and go, I don't feel God's presence in our church at all. I'm not going to tell you what I thought. But you know what? Preacher don't bring that in a... In a suitcase. Drew didn't bring that last week. David didn't bring that last week. Brother Jerry didn't bring that last week. Daniel Simmons don't bring that when he preaches here. The Spirit of God is birthed in our heart when we spend time with Him. Our emergency plan, prayer, operation of our prayer, objective of our prayer. If we get it together, if we get it together, look at the outcome. The outcome of our prayer. Now, the outcome of our prayer actually encompasses three of the needs that we spoke of when there is an emergency. Normal actions are suspended, change in behavior, and an emergency plan. When I read verses 5 and 6, I see all three of these things particularly in the context of this decaying, disintegrating culture. But I'm optimistic about the culture because I believe God still wants to touch his people. It's a matter if the people will allow it. Let me just show you three things very quickly that happens. One of them we've already covered He begins by, that I may make it clear, speaks of your testimony. How long has it been since you shared your testimony? If I were to ask you, if I were to say, Amy Lou, I want you to come up here and tell us your testimony. I picked on Amy because I know Amy wouldn't have a problem 
If I were to say, Sherry, would you come up here and share your testimony? Can you do it? If I were to call your name and say, come right now and share your testimony, would it go something like this? Well, you know, I got baptized 37 years ago, and my mom and dad always took me to church, kind of raised in the church, loved the church, sang in the choir. I taught Sunday school. I worked in the church office. I led singing. I did solo. Well, big deal. Tell us about what Jesus did in your life. You see, you can't speak anything clear if you don't have anything clear. And if you don't have anything clear, I hate to tell you this. I don't get any pleasure from it. Please listen. If you don't have anything clear in your life, you probably don't have anything in eternity you really want to look forward to. Your testimony, when you have it. When you have it, Jesus has made a change in you. He's taken someone who was dead and made them alive. He's made someone. He's taken someone who was dead and trespasses in sin, and he's made them alive in Christ. He's taken someone who was dead and he's revived them. And there's been changes in your life. It comes from prayer. When you trust Christ, it begins in prayer. Second thing, once you got your testimony ready, that you know Christ, then it moves to your time. He says, look here, he says, walk in wisdom toward the outsiders and make good use. That's Brother Jerry's translation. Make good use of your time. Redeem the time. Make the best use of your time. You know what the truth is? They're not making any more time. You do know that, don't you? You do know that. You do know time slipping away from us. But when we spend time with God, when we hear His voice, when we walk with Him, Time becomes more meaningful because we realize how little of it we have to touch our families and to change lives. God's placed you here. God's placed you here. God's placed you here to touch someone that perhaps no one else can touch. And this country depends on us doing our part in our segment of our world. When we spend our time when we spend our time on ourselves rather than God's important issues, we lead our churches, our culture, and our country into a state of emergency. Third thing I see here is just your talk. What are you talking about? I believe verse 6 ought to be underlined in every person's Bible. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each other. Now, here's what I want to say to you. Most people believe this, but they believe only the preacher is supposed to live by it. I mean, they'll walk up and say whatever they want to their pastor, and they dare you to counter them. You're the preacher. You're not supposed to talk like that. I want to go, well, you're a follower of Christ. You're not supposed to talk like that. But that's unspiritual. Can you imagine a world where all the believers, their speech was gracious, seasoned with salt? Whew. Have you ever eaten... <laughs> I'm the, I'm the grill king at my house. I can grill better than anybody else at my house. I know some men will try to take that 
from me here in the church, but I'm telling you, nobody leaves my house hating their hamburgers. But I'm going to tell you about the first batch I made. I didn't put any salt and pepper on the meat. And I took the first bite and spit it out because it tasted so bad. And do you know that's how our speech is? It's not seasoned with salt. It's why people, it's why people spit out what we say. How different would our world be? How different would our home be? How different would our church be? How different would our culture be? How different would you be if we applied this one verse to our speech? Mm. And just as I'm getting ready to end, and just as a final thought, if the church as a whole 175 of us, if the church as a whole decided to take Colossians 4, 6 and make that the crowning principle for the next three months of this church. Huh. Can I ask you a question? Do you think that we might actually change our influence in this community because how we interacted with that waitress that spilled our tea or came late with our food? Or that person that can't find in Walmart when you need somebody to wait on you. 